The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of EDU Futures. Today, I have Jonathan Haber, author of the book Critical Thinking from MIT Press. He's going to take us into a critical exploration of critical thinking today. I think you'll find it useful. It really does take us beyond the sort of checklist approach to how to teach critical thinking skills that often shows up whenever we explore the blogosphere and the like on education. Jonathan has done some really good, deep thinking and he's put it together in this book, and we get a glimpse of it in this podcast today. So without further ado, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. We have a little bit of a history, and maybe that'll come up in the uh, conversation a little bit later. But as we get started, I want to give people a chance to get to know you a little bit. You can go back as far as you want, but let's give the listeners a chance to hear a little bit about your story, and we'll obviously lead up to some of your most recent work here on critical thinking. Uh, thanks, Bernard. Yeah, no, my background is uh, originally I was an entrepreneur. I had a uh, company that did uh, testing and certification in a variety of, of job areas. Um, but when I sold that business, I sort of went entirely all in with education, worked for an educational publisher. My most recent job was helping to get a new graduate school of education off the ground. Uh, but a thread through the whole thing was sort of has been online learning and critical thinking. So um, if, if kind of listeners are familiar with my work at all, probably the best known project was work I did in MOOCs, massive open online courses, uh, several years ago when they're all the rage and people were talking that they're going to replace college as we know it, you know, but nobody really kind of having those conversations had taken any courses. And so that's when I did this degree of freedom project where I took 32 MOOCs in 12 months, uh, just to see how they compared with uh, college experience. They paralleled uh, my original college experience. And that's you know where I met you, Bernard. Uh, you, you taught a course in cheating in online courses. That was one of my courses uh, that I took. Uh, that led to a book uh, for MIT Press on MOOCs. And um, a critical thinking book is another book in that same series. It's the MIT Essential series. Um, and that's one we'll be talking about, but that's the my most recent book and most recent work focusing on critical thinking education. That's great. And you made the reference to this MOOC that I taught. For listeners who don't know that, um, I did indeed teach a course uh, on how to cheat in an online course. At least that was sort of how it was promoted in in the media. And uh, it was great fun. So it was good, good to have you. I it was a pretty large group, so I didn't get to know everyone in the MOOC. I'm curious, out of that early experience, and I love the way that you go about learning. It resonates with me is learning by doing and going out and experiencing something firsthand. I thought that was a fascinating way to approach this. I'd love to just talk about that, and then we'll kind of lead into the critical thinking, because I think there might be some interesting connections here. But um, can you talk a little bit about how you approached that inquiry for that, that first project on MOOCs? Sure. That was um, a project. I, I had actually just finished a uh, critical thinking project. It was a podcast associated with a curriculum called Critical Voter that actually turned into a book. Uh, 
a few years later. But that was an experience where, you know, I learned about curriculum development and obviously developed this whole kind of approach to critical thinking. Uh, but it, it had sort of very little traction at the time. I thought uh, it was during an election. I thought it would just get sweep, swept up with election coverage, but instead it got sort of swamped by it. Um, so for my next project, I was thinking, well, I should finish. when I finished up that project, I recommended everybody take a logic course if they wanted to learn more. And lo and behold, there was this free logic and reasoning course called Think Again out of uh, Duke University by this company I never heard of called Coursera. And I took the course and, you know, it was a decent course. I enjoyed it. But then I started reading, well, who is this Coursera company? What's this thing about MOOCs? And uh, found all these articles saying this is, you know, going to smash colleges. There'll only be 50 left, you know, they'll all be MOOCs. And I thought, well, you know, that experience, the course I just took was pretty good, but it wasn't that good, you know. But then I realized, well, what are you going to learn by just taking one course? What somebody should do is really take enough courses to be the equivalent of a undergraduate degree. And then those sort of frightening words in my household were uttered like, you know, why not me? And so I, I, I structured it as a project where, you know, every three months was another year of college. It paralleled my undergraduate experience where you had to take 32 courses over four years, uh, distribution requirements, major. Um, and that was that was a great experience. You know, I ended up, I thought I'd be writing about my experience, but in fact, there wasn't enough to say really about that. So I found myself um, doing more reflection on MOOCs, on the e economics of MOOCs, on the different components of them, pedagogy, et cetera. So it was a great way to get an experience of a very innovative format. And also it was interesting to be just at that point in time when sort of public attitude on MOOCs sort of turned. And so I was never a booster, but nor was I a skeptic. I was one of these people at an interesting point where my attitude was always, these are really interesting and something good can come out of it. Uh, but I was not, you know, public opinion sort of changed around me, I guess, is the uh, kind of way I described it. But it was a way to experience a lot of interesting courses. Yours was, you know, particularly interesting. Um, I think it was offered by Canvas, which is different than a lot of the other courses, but you know, it, had, it seemed more project-based. I like the innovative use of badges. I like the notion of that you're going to not just learn how other people cheat, but you're going to have to cheat yourself was one of your assignments. <laughs> that was very creative. And, and that's what I discovered in MOOCs is that not necessarily they're the be-all and end-all, but I found much more interesting experimentation going on and still going on in MOOCs than in conventional online courses, which are still sort of following a classroom model uh, very much. Yeah. And that actually, as you noted with, with my MOOC and all of the MOOCs that I facilitated have been experiments in and of themselves, that it wasn't just about the learning. It was about the creation and co-creation of something of the mm -hmm. participants. Yeah, and the MOOC book and the, the, you know, benefit of the essential series that MIT essential series is one of them is for terms that are sort of in flux. You get to sort of, uh, if, if not provide kind of, come up with a definition and one of them. And I always thought like MOOCs, well, you know, you could just define them by the acronym, right? Anything massive, anything online, you know, but it, th that didn't work, right? You know, what's massive versus really big, you know, 
what's online when you can have blended learning um, is a MOOC only, you know, if it's available from edX and Coursera, that didn't make any sense. So I sort of decided that sort of you're a MOOC if you're sort of part of a culture of experimentation, which I think your course definitely reflected that. Yeah, absolutely. And that maybe leads us to critical thinking. So I want to make sure we reserve enough time to really dive into one of these newer projects, your book, Critical Thinking, from MIT Press. Uh, why don't you give us a little introduction to this? How did this project come to be? Uh, well, you know, as I said, I, I sort of made contacts with the press with the MOOCs book and really uh, got very fond of the Essential Series format, which for people don't know, it's a book series designed for non-experts to master kind of complex subjects, initially started with technology subjects, but then moved into philosophy. So you'll have, you know, free will, for example, um, post-truth, a friend of mine wrote one on post-truth. Um, you know, with critical thinking, I mean, with my MOOCs project, actually, my major, quote unquote, was in philosophy. So, um, and then critical thinking and philosophy, obviously, are not the same thing, but they're, they're kind of strong kinship relationship. Um, I th think what I found was in, you know, critical thinking research, you've got critical thinking research, which is very robust. You've got critical thinking education, uh, which is very fragmented. And, you know, as I sort of was exploring, well, how can we get critical thinking to be a more uh, central part of K-12 and higher ed? There was sort of these debates going on that we don't know what critical thinking is. We don't know how it can be taught. We don't know if we can evaluate it. And the more I kind of learned, the more I thought, well, these are really just myths getting in the way of advancing the critical thinking project. So, so for the Critical Thinking Essentials book, it's not a textbook. There are many good critical thinking textbooks out there. My Critical Voter book is more of a curriculum approach. You know, this was going to be a book that was going to try to directly take on those myths head on and then try to synthesize what we do know about critical thinking so that we can make progress in critical thinking education and just increasing the amount of critical thinking in the world in our lives. Great. I appreciate the systematic approach to the book. You obviously give some context and history to it, and then uh, you define some terms, and then do give some good practical sort of steps on how we could go about nurturing nurturing it. But um, the myths piece is is going to be really interesting to our audience, and I'd like to get to that in a couple minutes. But can you take us on a on a little elevator pitch history of critical thinking? How did we get to the sort of modern conception of critical thinking that so many people talk about in education today? It's a terrific question because, um, you know, many people think it's sort of an ancient subject because, of course, it ties into very ancient subjects, notably philosophy and science, you know, but, but critical thinking, the notion that there's this form of thinking that is so distinct that it could be uniquely termed critical, you know, different from intelligence, different from wisdom, that actually has an origin point, which is 1910. You know, in 1910, John Dewey, who probably many listeners know, is probably one of the most important American intellectuals of the 20th century, uh, certainly in education, wrote a book in, called wrote a book called How We Think. And in that book, he defined a term reflective thinking, which, as we get into it, we'll sort of talk about uh, the components of critical thinking. But that was really the starting point of a conceptualization of critical thinking as distinct from other forms of quality thinking. And really, every discussion of critical thinking, every def definition of critical thinking that has come about since then has really been in dialogue with Dewey's reflective thinking. So that's that's a, a really 
really uh, provocative kind of um, context for many people because there are certainly proponents of the Dewey and philosophy and its influence in education. And then there are some of our listeners who are doing everything they can to resist going that pathway. <laughs> um, this is sort of, found, this is a kind of foundational um, idea that Dewey came up with, but it, it, it was, wasn't distinct from his progressive educational model. Uh, certainly, you know, how we think is, is well wrapped into it, but it, it's not necessarily um, kind of, of completely, they're not completely wired together. You know, the, the concept of reflective thinking, it is systematic thinking. It's thinking that certainly ties into um, ancient ideas like logic, but also science. Uh, it ties very much into the school of philosophy that uh, Dewey was a, a proponent of, which is American pragmatism, which I can get more into, you know, how uh, critical thinking derived from pragmatic principles. You know, but I would say his progressive model was based on the assumption is that the best way to teach people how to be reflective thinkers is um, allowing them to sort of, of build knowledge uh, through their own effort. And I, I certainly respect respect that and understand it. But at the same time, you know, you need to teach people principles of logic, for example. You need to uh, provide them opportunities to practice turning everyday conversation to logical arguments. And there's more than one way to do that. Right. Uh, it seems to me that our landscape today, that there is certainly in education, there's a growing conversation about different ways of knowing um, and sort of different kinds. Some may frame it around worldview conversations and, and things like that. So I think that's really interesting um, as we start talking about critical thinking, and, and maybe we'll come back to that. Um, but maybe for the sake of the listeners, we have that context. Now, can you give us a little working definition uh, to inform the rest of our conversation? How, how do you define critical thinking? Sure. You know, I, I think the I think one of the reasons we've sort of gotten into this uh, myth-based jam over it is, you know, because there's no consistent wording for critical thinking that all scholars agree on. There's this assumption that we, you know, don't know what it is, or there's no agreement uh, on it, and and that's kind of really false. Because if you look at the definitions, as you know from the book, you know, I, I kind of highlight over a dozen different ones. You know, they are not so distinct that you can't sort of boil them down to a model. And that model is that critical thinking consists of three key components. There's knowledge, you know, there's certain knowledge you have to have. For instance, you need to understand some system of logic to organize your thinking. Um, doesn't have to be one system of logic, doesn't have to be comprehensive understanding of logic, but you do need some methodology for structuring your thinking. But then you also need skills, you know, meaning you have to put that knowledge to work. You have to put it to use. So for instance, it's relatively easy to learn the rules of, say, informal logic, but to take a newspaper editorial and translate that into structured statements that you would apply uh, rules of logical argumentation to, that's a skill that just gets better with practice over time. And then finally, you need dispositions to choose to, for instance, approach issues through logical analysis versus just simply believing what you're told or believing the first thing that uh, comes into your head, right? So those three things together, knowledge, skills, and dispositions, if you take that as the sort of framework for critical thinking, then all the other definitions really fit into that. We can get into debates, for example, of whether creativity is a critical thinking skill or whether it 
falls outside into its own bucket. But, you know, those are sort of not vital to the notion that critical thinking is a set of knowledge, that knowledge put to work, so a set of skills and the dispositions to use it and take it together, that's enough of a definition to move forward. Right. And that's where I was getting uh, at when I was sort of alluding to this notion of different ways of knowing. So there might be um, different worldviews or belief systems or cultural perspectives that get into this kind of ways of knowing. Some, for example, might have a a really high uh, value culturally or within a community for the role of intuition. Mm -hmm. And so the question some might say is, is this sort of agenda or this push for um, critical thinking in education, uh, how does that clash or align with a value for uh, nurturing intuitive living or thinking? Uh, this is where sort of the full kind of blown understanding of critical thinking helps because I think for many people, they sort of think it's synonymous with logic uh, or logic analysis, you know, evidence. And certainly those are vital components of critical thinking, but critical thinking doesn't ignore the human experience, and the human experience is not all about the head, right? I think uh, Aristotle's three modes of persuasion, right? Uh, Logos, pathos, ethos, you know, uh, logic, emotion, and sort of connection. Um, You know, those play a vital role in critical thinking. In fact, in, in Critical Voter, I sort of talk about the modes of persuasion before I get into methods of logic, because, you know, when you are making decisions over anything important, you know, most important subjects can't be settled by logos alone, by logic alone. Um, most important things we debate politically or personally, even something simple like, you know, uh, do we use money? Does a town use money to buy new band uniforms or send kids off to play in the Rose Bowl, right? Those are those are two competing goods. Or in politics, certainly right now, we have to deal with competing bads, right? Do we... Um, in education right now, for example, there's a struggle with equity. I mean, there's always a struggle with equity, but particularly in uh, remote learning, we're going to leave kids behind um, if we move to remote learning as we've had to because of the COVID crisis. But a solution to that is to not teach anybody, right? So we have to make decisions where there's no obvious right one. There's not something we could pump into an algorithm and we'll get the right answer. Instead, we have to kind of listen to other people. We have to connect uh, with other people, which is an ethos response, which is about sort of, of connectivity. We also have to filter our decisions through emotions, but you know, emotions like caring, concern, respect, um, love for each other, you know, as opposed to bad emotions, which get in the way of critical thinking like fear or anger. Or hatred. So I'd say, you know, critical thinking does not sort of leave out intuition far from it. You know, there's whole schools of philosophy based on, on um, understanding and analyzing and applying sort of, of, you know, sort of scientific reasoning to our intuitions. So I think um, we should not sort of go with the assumption that, you know, even if we become a critical thinking society, we do not have to turn into planet Vulcan. Um, in fact, you know, planet Vulcan, uh, wasn't really, you know, as logical as they claimed to be. They just sort of suppressed emotion. And personally, I think that's a that's the wrong way to sort of think critically about the world. Another way to approach this, uh, just a different question, might be, what is the goal of critical thinking? I, I think the goal is to, you know, approach situations we face, problems we face with uh, a set of tools that allow us to 
think about things and discuss things and argue things reasonably, you know, and systematically. I think, you know, if you look at the problems we face politically and, you know, the sort of turmoil we've had, certainly over the last four years, but really over the last uh, couple of decades, a lot of it comes down to us thinking in unproductive ways. You know, we're making decisions emotionally or we are sort of ignoring the views of people we don't agree with or we may not even encounter people we disagree with. So it's easy to kind of caricature and parody their views. We're locking ourselves in sort of ideological and intellectual bubbles where uh, we only really talk to people who already agree with us. And, you know, the consequences of that have been dire. I don't think anyone really feels more empowered having sort of, you know, gotten themselves into situations where they never have to hear an opinion that might make them uncomfortable. Um, so I would say, you know, a, a critical thinking society is not one that is, you know, as I said, ruled by logic alone, but it's one where we apply kind of systematic ways of thinking and approaching to problems more often than not, or at least more than we do. And, and the example I keep coming back to is like science, right? It's, it's not like science is this magical formula. It's not like this magic scientific method that always gets you the truth. Science is a culture. You know, science is a culture where there are checks, uh, whether it's peer review or publishing data so other people can sort of check your work. You know, that's a check on confirmation bias. That's a check on the tendency that all people, including scientists, tend to agree with things they already believe and reject things they already disagree with. Okay, and all science does, well, you know, all it does, what science does is through uh, methodologies and culture, it diminishes confirmation bias just enough to give us everything science has given us over the last 500 years. You know, so I guess my position is if we can apply in the same kind of um, systematic reasoning and approach to belief um, that you've seen, you know, be so bountiful in science, if we could apply that to other things, then maybe, you know, we could obtain the benefits. You know, we don't have to be uh, logical 100% of the time, you know, but if we're just sort of thinking critically a bit more than we do, I think there could be enormous payoff. So I had uh, a prior podcast called The Moonshot EDU Show, and one of my last interviews was with uh, the former head of the ACLU. We had this conversation about free speech on college campus, and she urged me to go back and read a book that I had not read before that was, uh, I'm looking at looking over to make sure I get the, the author's name, Nat Hentoff, called Free Speech for Me and Not for Thee. Have you come across this? Sure, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> that was a while ago. That was yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it seems to me that that book exemplifies where we are uh, culturally in, in many ways, that in some in many ways, we have sort of established this sense of beliefs and values that we each hold, and we've identified others who we see as like us in terms of our beliefs and values. And then we have cultivated tactics and strategies to maintain or grow our power and influence in society, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> as opposed to uh, the goal being to seek understanding, to gain empathy, to look at something from multiple perspectives. The goal is, it seems to me, to win for what we in our community have deemed a noble cause. <laughs> 
And I'm wondering think, if you can respond to that just from the context of critical thinking. Well, I think it's, it's you know, extremely insightful, right? There's, the, there's this distinction between like an argument and a fight, for example, like an argument, uh, argumentation and is a big part of critical thinking and argumentation is actually a cooperative enterprise. You know, it is a way to achieve understanding um, and arguments are meant to get people to change their minds, you know, as opposed to a fight where you want people to do what you want them to do without changing their minds. And, and the reason argumentation is productive is that um, two people can have completely opposing views and they may not achieve anything close to reconciliation, but the argumentation itself is a productive enterprise, right? You can have somebody who says, you know, in times that, that the best thing to do to help the poor is to increase welfare payments. And you could have someone else who says, no, you know, welfare pay payments make people dependent. The best thing we do with the poor is help them become independent and or earn their own way. Okay. And these two people might fight and never achieve agreement, but they're actually on a common enterprise okay, to help the poor. They have diametrically opposed way of doing it. One may be right, one may be wrong, or maybe one is right in some circumstances and the other in others, right? That's argumentation. You know, a fight would be to kind of belittle one another, to claim, you know, the sort of, of one person is heartless or the other person is just, you know, trying to control other people's lives. That's a fight, right? You're not trying to convince anybody. You're just trying to win. And those are all extremely unproductive ways of engaging with each other. And I think, you know, some of the kind of free speech uh, battles we've seen, particularly on college campuses, they've been going on for, for many years, but they've gone particularly intense in the last uh, several years. And I think that's because we've lost the ability to argue. You know, we've lost the ability to decide somebody who disagrees with me is um, still somebody I could talk to and something productive can come out of our argument, even if we don't come to agreement. Instead, we say this person who disagrees with me is the enemy or is ignorant, or is somebody I'm going to, you know, try to get fired in a Twitter storm. And, you know, this is, I, th I think it's no accident that, you know, this is what our politics looks like, because we don't argue anymore, we fight. Yeah. I I'm curious about a phrase. I'm thinking about it. You said, we've lost the ability. And I'm wondering, is, it's possible to me that we've, we've lost the ability, or we're losing the ability. Um, collectively or in, in large enough pockets that it becomes evident in the ways that you described. I'm wondering if there's also not an, another possibility alongside that, which is that perhaps we still have the ability, but we've changed our goal. In other words, I'm just posing this as a question. I, I, it's, a, it's amusing. So perhaps it's, we, we've changed our goal to winning. At all costs, mm. at, at all costs. But we believe that the stakes are so high for some value that we hold to be true that that we would we've we've moved to an end. Uh, uh, you know, the end justifies the means sort of um, ethic that says I may think that. So, for example, you gave you gave the example on um, public policy mm -hmm. regarding um, um, sort poverty. of uh, poverty, right? So if I, I may believe that you have a logical argument, one that might even have some potential validity, um, but it, 
it doesn't help me get where I want us to be as a society or where I think we should be in order to be a more just society. Uh, and so instead of engaging you directly in this kind of critical thinking discourse, it's a more uh, valuable tactic for me to uh, demonize you or to diminish your voice in the public square so it doesn't spread. <laughs> right. So if I can say, you know, that's not really what you want. You don't, what you're saying is truly not your belief. This is a tactic that you have because of something else. Right. So I can kind of uh, transfer it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, you, 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 you definitely describe the situation we're in right now. And I don't want to paint a rosy picture, right? You know, sure. uh, political debates have been heated and bloody, you know, throughout human history. So it's not like there was this sort of golden age of discourse, you know, but I think there is definitely something um, unique that's been going on over the last 10, 20 years. And, uh, you know, we could talk about where that, that might come from, but I would say, um, you know, there is something uniquely troubling. And, and I guess, you know, for those who believe, you know, there are certain issues that are so important that we can, you know, um, ignore kind of, of rules of argumentation or replace kind of systematic thinking with passion. Um, I, would, I would just make the very sort of pragmatic argument that like, you know, how's that going so far, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's, I mean, one of, one of the principles I kind of, of bring up, um, you know, when I'm talking about sort of critical thinking principles and, and politics is that uh, when one um, blinds oneself to other ways of thinking, you know, one very frequently sabotages your own beliefs. I'll take a, a safe example, right? Um, you know, I'm, you know, a bit older, you know, I, my political formation was in the 80s, and I was a big fan of Gary Hart, you know, Gary Hart, Democratic candidate in um, 1984, came out of nowhere, was young, was charming. I really loved Gary Hart, and he, he lost the primary in 1984, but in 1988, he came on strong as the front runner. And I was all in for Hart. And I heard rumors that, you know, he was having affairs and, you know, but I just, I refused to believe it, right? I, my mind was made up. Those rumors are coming from, you know, uh, evil rivals or, you know, sort of, of tabloid media, you know, and, you know, in fact, they all turned out to be true and he had to drop out of the race. But, if you think about it, it, had sort of enough biased people like me, enough people willing to ignore facts and evidence in, in face of, of, you know, my biased support for this candidate. If enough of us, you know, got him to the finish line of the nomination, he would have been wiped out in the election uh, because all these things that we refuse to believe to be true. So there are many, many situations where, you know, people's biased reasoning uh, leads to losing the very battle they think that they're sort of of passion and you know um kind of of unwillingness to sort of 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 reason with those they disagree with you know in fact i would say you know the the surprises we've had in our political system you know that that i mean the sheer surprise of the 2016 election is a great example like almost all of us were sitting, you know, we all went to bed early. We knew the outcome of that election. Everybody was telling us what the out was, outcome was going to be. Everybody, you know, 
who, you know, or that many people talk to, you know, all had the same sort of, of inclinations, proclivities and belief. And lo and behold, we were taken by surprise, you know. So I would say blinding yourself to, you know, facts that are inconvenient or difficult or opinions you don't want to hear, you know, don't necessarily do it just to sort of, you know, be open-minded. Do it because you may be sabotaging your own sort of goals and purposes if you don't. Yeah, very good. So I'd like to take a, a shift here just because of time. We could go into this forever. I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> um, but I'll pick it up after the podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Your, your book <clears throat> takes us to another level, though. Uh, uh, sort of a practical level of how do we begin to teach critical thinking? Could you take it into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I'd say, you know, my mission is really educational because I do not believe that, you know, critical thinking is something that some people can do and some people can't. Um, The knowledge, you know, skills and dispositions can all be taught or, you know, practiced uh, or exemplified both in the classroom and in the home, as well as out in the wider world that we've just been talking about. Um, I, I guess to sort of, you know, keep it um, as, you know, straightforward as possible, what I think the pathway forward is, uh, there was a um, critical thinking researcher uh, named um, Annis who proposed uh, many years ago that there are really kind of four, really three ways of, of teaching critical thinking, three approaches. Uh, one is called the general approach, and that's what you see in colleges mostly where there's a critical thinking course, a course specifically dedicated to critical thinking. Then you've got what's called the immersion approach, which is, you know, teaching of traditional course material. And the assumption is that critical thinking skills are kind of baked into instruction on that course material. Then you've got the infusion approach where you still teach critical thinking in the context of other subjects, either math or science or ELA or any college subject, but that the critical thinking skills are spelled out explicitly. Okay, so the example I use is, you know, when a uh, math teacher teaches geometric proofs, right, that's deductive reasoning is built into geometric proofs, and the immersion process would just assume that through the experience of seeing an example of deductive reasoning, geometric proofs, students would get the idea of, of deductive reasoning, whereas with the infusion approach, that math teacher would stop and say, by the way, that's an example of deductive reasoning, here's what that is. Okay, so... 20 years later, there's been a lot of research. And as it turns out, you know, the best way to teach critical thinking is the last way I mentioned, where you explicitly teach critical thinking skills in the context of other material. The second best way is the general approach, standalone critical thinking course. And the worst way is immersion, right? The worst way is assuming critical thinking is coming along for the ride when um, smart, skilled teachers are teaching complex material. Well, what do we have throughout the entire education system, um, except perhaps in, in, you know, critical thinking standalone courses, right? You've got um, teachers who 99, 95 to 99% of teachers say teaching kids to think critically is my top, as a top priority, and I'm already doing it. Okay, but 75% of employers say that the kids they're hiring after 12, 16 years of or more of schooling can't do it, right? So, so it's not like the dedication isn't there, you know, it's just that the technique is not right. We're using immersion where we're assuming critical thinking will come with us through osmosis, and that's just not how it works. So, so we don't need to sort of throw out 
the curriculum. We don't need to get rid of science or social studies and replace it with a critical thinking course in K-12. We need to do what teachers are already interested in dedicated to doing, which is increasing the critical thinking skills of students and get them to move more from a sort of immersion approach to one where critical thinking is, when appropriate, is explicitly uh, spelled out in the course of teaching traditional course material. Um, So that's really what I'm advocating. A lot of the work I've been doing since the book sort of went to bed is getting into the how one would do that. Right. It seems to me an analogy uh, might be of a teacher as a sort of tour guide. So we're taking them through a tour of this world of critical thinking. And as we as we go through whatever content uh, we're engaged in, we pause whenever we see something noteworthy and we draw someone's attention to a nuance that an expert might see, but a novice might not. Right. You know, critical <laughs> thinking is, you know, we talked before, critical thinking is you know, a certain knowledge, you know, certain skills that need to be put in practice, right? And and the good news is the specific critical thinking skills are not super complicated, right? You know, rules of informal logic, you know, um, you know, techniques and argumentation, right? The, uh, any teacher um, who's teaching, you know, material, you know, biology, um, history, you know, they all have mastered far larger bodies of knowledge than the body of knowledge one needs for critical thinker. They just haven't necessarily been systematically taught the critical thinker's tool set and then taught how to integrate the critical thinking tool set into the teaching of history or science or math or whichever subject. Um, so, you know, the um, you know, analogy I use is, is nobody would say, well, you know, why do we bother teaching math, right? Because Math is covered in physics, so why don't we just teach physics and math will come along for the ride? Everyone would think that's ludicrous. You know, why do we think critical thinking skills are going to sort of be developed absent um, people who know how to teaching teach them actually teaching them? You know, so so it's not a dramatic change in sort of approach. We don't need to tear down the existing school system and, and start over again. We just need to do the things teachers are already dedicated to, to do but do them through a set of techniques that are designed to do them well. Right. Yeah, that's great. It makes a lot of sense. Have you, do you have any, as we sort of finish up here, any exemplars or uh, resources that you would suggest? Obviously um, we'd encourage people to check out the critical thinking book that you've put together, but um, anything you direct people to if they want to learn more or see some really promising examples of how this is being done well. Uh, Sure. Well, I won't, you know, promise it's done well, but you know, one, project I've been doing this year that I think um, people who are interested in both learning the skill set and also interested in seeing it applied to some of the um, more hot button debates that we talked about before. I've got a a new site called Logic Check. That's uh, logiccheck.net. And that was designed to kind of be similar to fact-checking sites like factcheck.org and uh, PolitiFact, but instead of sort of checking the facts are checking facts alone. I'm actually checking the reasoning behind uh, the news. So that's a good place to go if you want uh, some examples of how the skill set applied to actual sort of real world situations. And if you're interested in learning through that skill set, there's a curriculum page that'll show you the sequence to go through on that. So, um, you know, that's one resource I would point people towards. Um, you know, I think the critical thinking Essentials is great to talk about some of these high-level things you and I have talked about. If you want to get more into the nuts of bolts, nuts and bolts of critical thinking, I think uh, 
critical voter uh, has more of a curriculum approach. And then there's many, many good texts on critical thinking. In fact, I'd say, you know, the bulk of critical thinking books are college textbooks. And there's many um, decent ones you could learn from. Um, you know, I'd say, you know, one kind of recommendation is um, to not just learn these tools, but sort of reflect on your own sort of, of approach to discussion, argumentation, sort of think about um, how much, you know, in your life you're actually engaging in sort of quality discourse that involves sort of reflecting on beliefs. I always sort of describe that the home is probably a better place than school to develop the dispositions of critical thinking, kind of open-mindedness, um, charity towards other people's opinions. Uh, I think those are the places that you learn through example, right? And if you live in a kind of dogmatic household, then, you know, the, the parents should realize you're potentially creating a break on your, your kid's future success because they're not being taught how to sort of cultivate kind of intellectual virtues of, of kind of open-mindedness and, and welcome debate, you know, welcome debate and argumentation on, you know, difficult subjects and understand you might not come to agreement or resolution, but that the, the journey is, is, you know, the reward on that. So, yeah, I'd, th I'd say, you know, if we're going to kind of make breakthroughs, schools will be an important part of it. But I think we also have to kind of educate ourselves um, through MOOCs, like, you know, the one you mm -hmm. did or, or ones that still exist on critical thinking topics. Those are worth looking through, through reading, but also just through kind of living a life that's trying to uh, apply these, not in every single aspect of our lives, but more often than we do now. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, some of the research around performance enhancement and the notion of deliberate practice. So especially when it comes to something like this, that one can read about it, but ultimately one has to practice it with feedback, <laughs> with reflection and feedback. <laughs> and there is a critical thinking researcher who uh, likens critical thinking to becoming great at an instrument or a sport that it might take 10,000 hours to get good at. Now, there's no mm -hmm. empirical research that says that's the number, but clearly, you know, if, if the things you need to learn to be a critical thinker are finite, which they are, you can actually master them in, in you know, days, not weeks or months, you know, but to get really good at it, like you said, you know, that's the bulk of it. And that's through deliberate practice. You know, that's right. applying it to the editorial you read. That's using it when you're having a discussion or debate with a friend or loved one or deciding what college to go to or what washing machine to buy, you know, and it, it's through ongoing deliberate practice that these skills become internalized. And I think that's when you become a critical thinker. Jonathan, this is a really great gift. I think it's an important book that you've put together. I appreciate it. Um, Thought provoking. I'm hopeful that our listeners will check it out. So thanks for your work, for your work on this and the previous work and the things that I'm sure are mulling around in your mind right now and will find their way into the world soon. It's been great to be on, on the show. I uh, love talking to you. Thanks again for your course and for everything you're doing. And uh, talk to you again soon, I hope. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.